When you're surrounded by folks that all think the same way as you, if you're starting to have doubts, it's really easy to push those down and it's really scary to raise those doubts when you don't feel like anyone else is there. I spent the last three years, I lived in pretty progressive neighborhood of Southwest Minneapolis. And then I drove an hour west to serve a congregation in rural Minnesota, where two thirds of the county voted for Trump in 2020. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Angela Danker, a Lutheran pastor and journalist. Her book, Red State Christians, takes a hard look at white Christian nationalism and the evangelicals who voted for Trump. Angela, welcome to Burn the Boats. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, You published an updated version of Red State Christians after the events of January 6th, but it was way back in 2019, which seems like a lifetime ago, that you were one of the first to dive deep into Christian nationalism. Can you give us an idea of, of what that term means? And if you could do it by sharing the story, which opens your book, of what 4th of July celebrations look like at the mega churches you visited? Because I think that imagery, the flag and the cross side by side, that captures Christian nationalism better than just about any statistics we might be able to come up with. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the beginning story of Red State Christians started out what feels for me now like a very naive place for me and even for my publisher. They came to me with this idea um, and Hindsight's 2020 when you look at all this, but their initial idea was they had seen the success of Hillbilly Elegy and they're like, we want to do the Christian Hillbilly Elegy, <laughs> which was, um, you know, we've seen a lot of changes uh, since then with with what's happened with J.D. Vance. But so I, you know, set out on this journey to really my impetus, my goal was to tell stories and to talk to the people who weren't getting a chance to share their stories in the national media, particularly just everyday Christians, rural Christians, as well as some prominent leaders. But I began my journey at the March for Life and at the March for Life spoke with a pastor from Florida who was then a member of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's the one who pushed me on Christian nationalism. And I really have to credit him with, you know, kind of busting my naivety and saying, this is a gospel distortion in the church right now. And so he was the one who said, you know, if you really want to understand this, you got to go to Preston Wood Baptist Church in Plano, Texas, just north of Dallas on Fourth of July weekend. And so that's what I did. And that's ended up being how the book began and shaped so much, like you say, of what you see in the rest of the book is so much of it ties back to Christian nationalism. And we've seen that in the years to come as well. It's the elevation of the state to the, um, well, it's like physically placed on the altar. You have the cross side by side with the flag. You have the Pledge of Allegiance recited in church. And an interesting footnote there, the under God part. And, you know, I grew up in an evangelical tradition and I've been to events where people literally yell the under God part of the Pledge of Allegiance as kind of an, an F you <laughs> to, to everyone else. And that wasn't even part of the original pledge. I mean, something has changed. This is not the the emergence of an undercurrent that's always been there. It's something new, and I would argue, as you do, sinister, and it's a perversion of the gospel. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I thought maybe we can talk about today, too, you know, I know your record of military service and, you know, 
Thank you for your military service. I come from a family of military veterans as well. And I would say the thing that really struck me the most when I was attending that service is the way that they used the military to justify sort of this Christian nationalist state. And what bothered me, you know, as a person, I also served as a chaplain in at the Minneapolis Veterans Hospital, was the way in which it used military members as props. And so they would show these montage scenes of the American military in combination with scenes of Jesus' death on the cross. And for me, it was this direct comparison of saying that military death and sacrifice is analogous to Jesus' sacrifice. And for me, it just so ignores the individual stories of military veterans. It, it doesn't allow each person who served to have their own unique story. Um, and it, it really uses the military in a way that I saw, you know, Donald Trump really latch onto that with military symbolism as well. We saw that um, as he's you know, standing in front of a church after George Floyd. So that was really troubling for me at that service as well. So you're describing a, a symptom, but I've got to ask where that glorification of, and I'll just say it out loud, that glorification of violence, of the righteous warrior imagery, where does that come from? Because it's not in Scripture, at least it's not in the New Testament. How did the evangelical church of today adopt such a militant attitude towards Christianity? There's a lot of perceived cultural losing, and it comes from a lot of different places. So I want to you know, not that was one of my goals in the book as well is like, let's not tell one story for this whole movement and one story for the people within this movement because there's multiple stories. There's certainly, you know, one of my reasons for updating the book in 2022 was that the role of, I think that in the initial edition, I probably underplayed the role of race and just this sense of racial anger, racial violence um, for many white Americans seeing the country becoming uh, more diverse, seeing the presidency of Barack Obama as a perceived threat. Um, I think that was that history of racial violence and anger in America certainly um, becomes a part of this and becomes a part, you know, in many denominations, such as the Southern Baptist Convention, that were founded in the wake of the loss of the Civil War and the end of slavery. So that's a player. It's not the only player. You know, when I went to places like Appalachia, I saw, and I've seen within my own family and my own congregation that I served in rural America and on farms, there is this real story of despair, sort of economic despair that was maybe touched on a bit in Hellbellyology. And I do think that that, and for me, you know, as a journalist, it's this sense for people that they don't matter, they don't count, their voices aren't being heard. Some of that's perception, some of it is reality, some of it's a result of economic issues. Um, so I think those things those things are all a part of it. And as you stated, very little of that has to do with Jesus. Well, well I'm, I want your insight on that because you just gave a great journalistic answer and from like a cultural anthropology perspective, that's super insightful. But you're an expert on on scripture. And what is the scriptural basis for this fetishization of the military for the worship of of guns? How do they justify that when they're literally thumping the Bible every Sunday at the altar? There's a way of 
of reading the Bible that's very popular in Christian nationalism. And, you know, for me as a female pastor, a lot of folks don't think women should be pastors will say, you know, that the Bible is necessarily masculine, that God is necessarily masculine. And along with that comes an honoring and a, a sacralization of violence. So we saw that with the rise of pastors like Mark Driscoll of Mars Hill out in Seattle. When I was first starting out in ministry, the pastor who I worked with was a huge fan of Mark Driscoll and this sense that the church have, has become feminized um, and we need to militantly take back the church. If you're asking for a scriptural support for that, I don't think you can necessarily find it. But as a Lutheran, for me, as a Lutheran pastor, Martin Luther said, all of scripture and all of religion is about interpretation. Nobody has like the one truth of scripture. And so everything we do is interpreted by Jesus' revelation, by prayer, and by discernment, by study. And so there is room for debate on Bible passages. And I think, you know, to deny that and to say, well, no, this one one interpretation is correct is is not biblical or factual. How does anticipation of the end times, the eschatology of the modern evangelical church factor in? Because when you think about allusions to violence or descriptions of violence in the New Testament, you know, they're, they're few and far between, but they exist. There's obviously the crucifixion, but they really reach their peak in the book of Revelation and I have this this habit of listening to AM radio on long drives, not just, you know, in Ohio, but when I travel around in the South in particular. And that is a, a pretty resonant theme across uh, just about everything I listen to coming out of evangelical movements today. Yeah, there's a very present sense of fear. And, you know, of course, Jesus says perfect love casts out fear, but this sense of fear within the movement of Christian nationalism is what really holds people captive to it. And I really got the biggest sense of that sense of fear, not in Dallas, you know, not in this Christian nationalist center necessarily, but really when that was coupled with weapons. So the third chapter of the book is on guns. And I visited more of a um, Pentecostal church in Florida where the pastors carry guns. And, you know, I've I've been around guns before I grew up around hunters. This is a different thing where it's coupled with this sense of imminent fear and the end times. And it's also coupled, interestingly, often with the prosperity gospel and this sense that, okay, if you do the right thing, you're going to get money and cars and wealth. Now, again, too, um, this is this is distinct from this old time Southern religion, necessarily. That's more this old school, God, country, military. We see also... What Trump did is he kind of merged these two groups together. So you've got like the Paula Whites, the more global Pentecostal religion. And that's where we get this bringing in, especially of the end times and this sense we've got to defend ourselves for these coming end times. Um, Certainly a weapon that has been used for a long time to justify a lot of corrupt religious leadership, whether it's Warren Jeffs in Utah or, um, you know, Jim Jones in Jonestown. Well, I I would submit that the corruption goes beyond those who have, you know, literally preyed upon and in in the case of a few like Jim Jones, murdered their followers when you are taking from the poor to build your own estates and build, you know, temples to your own personality. That might not be be illegal, but it's certainly, I would argue, corrupt in in any interpretation of, of the New Testament that 
that I would uh, agree with. There's this passage from your book that that captures this really well, and I'd love your reaction to it. You say that we need to pay attention to the vocal minority of red state Christians, like the ones I met at the river at Tampa Bay, whose commitment to gun rights is based in fear, isolation, and an impending American Armageddon. That fear-based Christianity, your term, I see that all the time. What I can't make out is how to reconcile it with the prosperity gospel or the idea that if you do certain things, there is an economic message coming from the pulpit in in mega churches today. How do they square that with the idea that the world is ending? I think, you know, in just a really practical sense, you got to have a carrot and you got to have a stick, right? <laughs> so some people are going to respond to the carrot, some people are going to respond to the stick. And also we have, you know, that's the other thing that um, Trump was able to bring together is we have this worship of celebrity and fame and wealth in America. And that was shunned for a long time by American Christians, whether it goes all the way back to the Puritans. And so we've seen a real change, you know, even with somebody like Jerry Falwell Jr., this embrace of wealth, or somebody like Bill Hybels, you know, the megachurch movement, Rick Warren, this acceptance of Christianity of saying, like, it's good to be a billionaire. <laughs> That's a hard sell on the Jesus of the New Testament. It sure is convenient, though, for those at at the top of that pyramid. For those who are unfamiliar, can you talk a little bit about the prosperity gospel and how they're able to pull it off? Yeah, this is old, right? We call it the prosperity gospel. They called it the Tower of Babel at one point. Um, This idea that we're gonna climb our way up to God. Um, You know, they had the the gold cat, the golden calf at the time of Moses and Aaron. And I would say for me, you know, what I always try to remind American Christians is that this is not a uniquely American phenomenon. So when people want to say, oh, no, this is just a partisan issue. This is between Democrats, Republicans, red states, blue states. I really want to remind people that for those of us who are Christians and even people who aren't, we have to look at Christian history all the way back to the Roman Empire. The early Christians, they're running for their lives. The Apostle Paul is in chains. He's writing most of his letters. And then in AD 300, so 300 years after the birth of Christ, the Roman Emperor Constantine on his deathbed takes on Christianity. And at that point, Christianity goes from being the persecuted religion of the empire who crucified Jesus to the religion of the empire. It goes on to become the Holy Roman Empire in Europe, you know, the largest landowner in Europe. And so at that point, we see a hinge point in where where Christianity becomes the religion of empire. And I think those are some of the same phenomenons that are happening with, you know, prosperity gospel um, indulgences that, you know, my my buddy Martin Luther spoke against 500 years ago. I think these are all the same ilk, and it's all this, this hope and this dream that we can become God. There is such a, a strong appeal to the idea of persecution within the church today, hearkening back to the church's early times, but it it almost seems like another fetishization when you have, uh, and examples of this are more on Christmas rhetoric, but you see it in in a million other forms, the idea that Christians have this bunker mentality, and they almost seem to relish it. I shouldn't say Christians broadly, but the evangelical MAGA red state Christians that you write about, 
love the idea of being in a bunker together, sending off slings and arrows as their own tribe. Is that just a historical wistfulness or is there something else going on? There's a weird thing that's gone on. I, I think I've seen this since, you know, I was a teenager even maybe where there's been um, some kind of benefit in whoever has got the claim for the most suffering. I mean, that you can probably relate to it in your time in politics of everybody grew up poor, you know, everybody. <laughs> so I think that and the, just the claiming of, you know, identity politics that maybe was initially something that was more prominent on the left and I think has really shifted to now the Republican Party has become the party of identity politics. And so from a Christian perspective and the sense of persecution, I think the way to really um, combat that in one sense is to really lift up the stories of folks who are currently experiencing persecution around the world for their faith. And I you know, was able to spend some time with um, Christians living in Bethlehem um, and just ex- hearing the stories of their lives and what they've faced to continue to be this Christian presence in the Holy Land. It pales in comparison to, you know, the distinction of happy holidays versus Merry Christmas. And for pastors, you know, if there's Christian leaders, ministry leaders, pastors who are listening, I think so much of this when I talk to faith leaders, it's on it's on us. You know, how have we positively explained what the gospel is. You know, some some folks have spent so much time saying what the gospel is not, but we haven't really explained what the gospel is. And when people have a strong sense for that, then you can locate yourself within where it is and step out of this sense of, you know, feeling sorry for ourselves in a sense. Yeah, I definitely want to get to the pushback that's happening within the church today, but that persecution complex is just so cynical and self-serving, especially when you compare it to real persecution that is happening abroad when you talk about Christians or in this country when you talk about LGBTQ plus communities. And the scariest thing for me is how these churches you study have extended that persecution complex to the entire country. And this passage from your book captures that. You say that Red state Christians consider America and American Christianity under siege, not just their church, but the the country itself, resulting in a defensive pushback. Churches today must defend not just Jesus, but also America. The American flag and the Christian flag are posted side by side in sanctuaries across the country, often directly in front of the cross. I've heard you say it, and I think it bears reminding that Jesus was not American. Yeah, I mean, there's no America in the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Believe it or not, (laughs) what's come to me too, you know, and this is, this hasn't been necessarily an easy process for me, but, you know, so when I first began speaking about the book, when it came out and I, I spoke in a lot of what people would call conservative communities, I spoke to a lot of conservative churches. And I would say that, that Jesus is an American and there'd be kind of like a silence and the people would always laugh, you know, like, oh yeah, of course he's not. (laughs) But it was this, this moment where we kind of all needed to hear that in a sense because Jesus has been, you know, if you even look at some of the imagery that's used around, you know, movements within the Christian right or movements in support of Trump, there's a lot of imagery that depicts Jesus as being American, Jesus as being a soldier for America. Um, so it, it definitely bears repeating. What's happened for me um, since the book came out and in this transition to the new edition of the book is that I also 
felt really compelled to begin talking about how Jesus is also not white. And that, you know, I grew up in Minnesota. I'm German and Scandinavian. The Jesus in my churches was blonde, I believe. (laughs) And, you know, I think that even that deeper truth helps white American Christians to de-center ourselves from the story of Christianity. And we've for so long centered ourselves in that story when really, if you want to find white people in the Bible, maybe that maybe it's Pontius Pilate, maybe it's the Roman soldiers. That's that's about it. And so I think there's, you know, for a long time, I was one of those people that thought, oh, you know, we can't make everything about race. I live, you know, just about five miles from where George Floyd was murdered. And so I think that was a real, you know, watershed moment for me and really sp- speaking plainly about the role of race and racism in this violent movement of Christianity and also really speaking clearly about where Jesus is on that topic as well. And Jesus was not afraid to speak plainly about abuse and persecution. This is sponsored by Lomi. I have a big family and that means there's usually a lot of trash left over by the time the week comes to an end. And frankly, I used to feel a bit guilty about this, but then I got a Lomi. Now that I have a Lomi, it's changed the way I think about food waste. Lomi transforms my garbage into gold at the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns food scraps to dirt in under four hours. Now, I love composting. Plus, it's made cooking at home even more fun. There's no food rotting in my garbage And thanks to Lomi, I don't have to take out the trash nearly as often. And it's a hassle-free, mess-free experience. No more leaking bags. Here's something cool, too. I turn my waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed to my plants, lawn, or garden. That means it's not going to landfills. I get to help the environment and make my life easier. All my food scraps, plant clippings, and even those leftovers I forgot in the back of the fridge go back into my garden, helping me grow more nutritious food right in my backyard. Food waste makes up a huge portion of our personal carbon footprint. By reducing the amount of food I send to a landfill, I'm helping do my part for the planet while also feeding my garden. Whether you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash boats and use promo code BOATS to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to lomi.com slash BOATS and use promo code BOATS at checkout. Thank you, Lomi, for sponsoring this episode. Well, the historical Jesus really is a challenge to a lot of the the values and the policy prescriptions offered by the the churches you are talking about. Not only was he not white, he was a children of immigrants. Uh, He was persecuted for who he was and where he was from. Jewish. (laughs) And I'm wondering how you're mentioning that in some of these churches is received. There is clearly pushback even among evangelicals against this adoption of militancy and racist subtexts. How is that internal conflict playing out right now? Well, you know, our Christianity has become, I think, even more polarized, you know, in the years that since I've written the book, there's a lot of um, places that 
just would never have me come speak. <laughs> like the places that are going to have the most pushback are going to be probably avoiding having me there or, you know, engaging with my work. However, I will say that, you know, I do get messages and notes from folks who are kind of stepping out of some of the ideology that they've received in mega churches and in evangelical churches. And I'll say too, there's such a soft sell, especially in a lot of these large, wealthy suburban churches that are ultimately pushing a lot of anti-women messaging, a lot of misogynist messaging, a lot of like violent messaging. There's a very soft sell, especially to families. And so they they sort of draw in folks with like, we've got this great place for kids and it's this beautiful building and we've got this awesome music. And then people find themselves there and then all of a sudden they'll hear something. I've had this, you know, happen with friends of mine and they'll be like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that, <laughs> you know, this this church didn't support gay marriage or that this church was, you know, this pastor was such a huge Trump supporter. So I think that, again, there's that, that that would not happen in a smaller local congregation because people would be knowing who their pastor is and knowing who one another is. But in these large churches, of which I've served in the past, um, you, know, you can be more anonymous and people don't know each other and people don't speak to the pastor directly. The pastor almost becomes sort of like this unreachable godlike figure. Um, and so I think that contributes to a lot of sense of misinformation and people just kind of find themselves getting swept up into things. And then, as you heard on, if you ever listened to the Mars Hill podcast that Christianity Today put out, people, when they try to disentangle themselves from this movement, that's all their friendships, that's all their clubs. They get so, so you know, they've given so much money. And so I think that much of this process of stepping away from Christian nationalism for people, it's like a recovery process. It's like a 12-step process. It's like this, you know, and it's it's much more of a like a therapeutic process rather than like, let's get in an argument and I'm going to convince you rationally to change your mind. It's not really a mind issue. Well, you haven't said it this way, but everything you are describing suggests cult deprogramming. Yeah, and I think that you know, so much of religion in general <laughs> can be considered, you know, cult. Like, we have to be really careful. Jesus was a aware of that as well, like, criticizing in the religious hierarchy of his day. So I guess, yeah, I'm kind of hesitant to, like, throw that term around at people, being a pastor myself. And <laughs> but it is. It is a lot. I listen to a lot of cult podcasts. It's, uh... What does it take to successfully guide people away from that distorted gospel, acknowledging that the reason the MAGA gospel is preached at these mega churches is because it works. It's attractive in some way. It's certainly lucrative. It is incredibly effective. We can just look at the, the numbers and the growth of these churches for evidence of that. How do you counter something that alluring? I think part of it, too, is just the sort of homogenization politically of a lot of our communities and a lot of our churches. So when you're surrounded by folks that all think the same way as you, if you're starting to have doubts, it's really easy to push those down. And it's really scary to raise those doubts when you don't feel like anyone else is there. And so that's why I've often said to like, I spent the last three years, I live in a pretty progressive neighborhood of Southwest Minneapolis. And then I drove an hour west to serve a congregation in rural Minnesota where two thirds of the county voted for Trump in 2020. And so I 
you know, spent a lot of time in both of these sort of polarized worlds. And what I saw was that we deeply kind of need each other. And also that it's important to listen to minority political voices and communities. And so that's why I so, you know, support the work of people who are encouraging, especially like the Democratic Party to re-engage in rural America, to listen to the voices of folks who are, you know, and I think Barack Obama did that pretty effectively. It's like, maybe we're not, maybe you're not going to win this county, but you're going to get a little bit of a more, um, more divided electorate, a little bit larger minority. And I do think that just when, when other people have the sense for that there's space to have pushback in these conversations, there are churches who are going to offer an alternative. People want that. Um, sometimes they're just not aware that it's possible. Yeah. When I drive through rural Ohio and listen to those AM stations, I hear again and again this idea that a revival is coming. Language like a re- revival, the likes of which we've never seen. And it's it's presented almost ominously not in a hopeful way, but in kind of a vengeful way, like they'll see what's coming. I assume you're hearing that too, and how worried should we be? Yeah, I hate that because I'm like, yeah, I want a revival. Like, I want a good revival. (laughs) I want it to be, you know, that there is this sense for hope. And like, I think that it's just so depressing for me as like a person of faith to hear that language said with an ominous tone and this sense that a revival will bring um, punishment and danger for others rather than a spiritual awakening for yourself, which would I, you know, would hope would be the goal of revival. Yeah. And I think, again, it's that pairing of that kind of rhetoric with, you know, the storing up of weapons, the increased availability of especially deadly weapons. I had a member of my church out in rural Minnesota who's serving on the township board. And he told me they've got militias coming to visit them saying, you know, this is what you need to do to amend the constitution or secede from the U S and they're dead serious about it. Um, so I think that there, there is no like limit to the, to the level of rhetoric anymore. And at some point things I think, you know, will, will explode. And we've seen that even just in the case of some of the mass shootings that have happened because of people being encouraged by this kind of rhetoric. Where does the love or attraction to conspiracy theories come from? And when you talk about militias, I am immediately think of the the conspiracies that draw people to that. Obviously, this is an issue within the veterans community. But I, I think some people are gonna going to wonder if it's just a news ecosystem thing, or if there's something more fundamental in the mode of thinking that takes hold after a while in these MAGA churches that opens the mind up to these kinds of outlandish QAnon conspiracy theories. Well, I'll I'll give you two perspectives. The first thing I thought about from a Christian lens um, is this history of Gnosticism, G-N-O-S-T. Yeah. So this sense that you know, everybody wants to believe like we have access to the secret truth and only we have access to it and only we know and other people don't know. And there you can see that with, you know, the kinds of TV shows that are popular or, you know, Trump really played on a lot of that as well. Like, well, I know, you know, these secrets that nobody else knows. 
So I think there's just an innate human attraction to that. Of course, Jesus really challenges that notion. When Jesus says, I've come to save the world, Jesus never said that he came to save a select small group of people. But there's a sense, and I know I've had to go through this in my own faith journey, of like, oh, if everybody is going to, if Jesus came for everybody, does it mean that I matter less? And that's the contrast between, you know, what we've taught as Americans of this sense of scarcity and what Jesus offers, which is a sense of abundance. And then like from a journalistic lens, gosh, you know, I think the American media ecosystem has to take a good long look in the mirror when it comes to the growth in conspiracy theories. American media companies have done a huge amount of damage to credibility and a huge amount of damage to, um, you know, people's trust in the news. And they've sort of sacrificed that really willingly on, you know, what story is going to get the most clicks or how are we going to be the most obnoxious or, you know, and I just think that's been really short-sighted and it's been the sense of an industry sort of flailing with the, the end of the dominance of print media trying to find its way and also elevating folks that maybe had some celebrity, maybe had some access, but really didn't have the journalistic training or chops to earn the trust that that news folks had been afforded by Americans for so many years. How much sway does mainstream media still have in these communities or even fringe media? My assumption would be that the pastor or the religious leaders in, in that community have far more influence. And if they say the sky is falling, it, it doesn't matter what's happening outside. A lot of those people in church are going to believe it regardless of what the media says. So here's the deal. Local pastors are kind of hamstrung. It's the Joel Osteens. It's the guy they're hearing on, you know, national media. It's the, you know, Robert Jeffress in Dallas. It's it's the Falwells. It's there's so many national Christian celebrities at this point um, that people trust. And I I don't remember. If, I feel like there has been studies that have documented this. Um, we have to look at somebody like Brian Burge who keeps track of a lot of that, or um, Robert Jones, the RPPI uh, religious polling. But um, local pastors. And again, there's this there's this distancing, right? As churches get larger, people don't have that relationship that they once had with their local pastor. So instead, I think it's this Christian media ecosystem. It's this system of books. Um, Caitlin Beatty recently wrote a book about, you know, the celebrity culture in Christian media. All of that has had a huge influence, and I think much larger than that of local congregations. As far as mainstream media, I read an article this week that was talking about like even though you know people say cable news has diminished in popularity if you look at the response to Tucker Carlson and to Don Lemon this week you can still see there's a pretty big influence from these anchors there's a there's an influence from um you know even for you know Donald Trump like he was very keyed into what Fox News was saying what Fox News was doing and CNN so I think it's it continues to wane, especially for younger folks. Um, there, you know, maybe it looks something more like YouTube. That's really driving opinions. Uh, TikTok, to an extent as well. But it's certainly nothing to be written off. Yeah, I was on CNN for like two minutes, and it was by far the largest response I ever had to my book. <laughs> so, What does the future hold for 
red state Christians. You've talked about the young people in the church. In my world, I'm a parent. I've got three kids. There isn't much attraction to that, but you're a pastor. You've been visiting these churches. Is there is there a draw there, or are the demographic trends inevitable, and this bunker mentality is just going to grow stronger and stronger as they feel more and more assaulted by the reality of where America's going? Yeah, it's hard to say. First, I have two kids. I love kids. I think, you know, there has to be more attention paid to the role of of parenting in these dynamics and the role of parents, the role of education. And again, you know, I think there's so much, uh, much attention put on like parents who are wanting to ban books or parents who are wanting to limit treatment for trans kids and things like that. But there's not a lot of attention paid to okay, but what are parents supposed to actually do then, you know? Or how are we really supposed to engage with our kids who are facing this, especially boys, I have two boys, facing this media landscape that wants to appeal to them on a level of violence or masculinity. Um, And, you know, so I think that um, the future is sort of leaning in on the part, you know, I do a lot of encouraging of local pastors we hear a lot about these like celebrity mega church pastors who are, you know, driving around in their fancy cars or expensive sneakers or flying in private jets. The majority of pastors in this country are not at all wealthy, you know, kind of barely making it month to month, um, wanting to do the best job that they can. And so I think that there's sort of a feeding into of like, let's not abandon our local congregations. Let's not abandon these places where community can happen across partisan lines. And let's, you know, provide support for families who are often trying to do the best that they can and not necessarily wanting any kind of, you know, political or partisan influences, but just to like provide a safe place for their family and teach their kids to be loving and kind in some way. Yeah. Well, we can't ignore (laughs) politics and partisanship because we're heading into 2024. How do you see the the marriage between MAGA and evangelical Christianity playing out? There have been some, you know, whispers, I, I won't say of divorce, but some dissatisfaction. And boy, this could be its own show, but the Dobbs decision and Trump's wavering on on that and the way the evangelical churches have entrenched even further, it's it's going to be more complicated than it was in 2016, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, in 2016, it was like, isn't this fun? Trump's running for president. This is funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have a hard time. I think 2020, I have to believe 2020 was like the high point of Trump getting out his base as much as he could get out his base. You know, all those folks came out to vote um, for Trump. And so whether Trump's the nominee or not, I think that in my sense that and what, you know, we've seen from political polling that like high 30s percent, that seems to be the ceiling, right, for this kind of mega movement. I just have a hard time seeing it go over that. But maybe I said that, you know, before 2020 and then it went up again. So who knows? I think that as far as evangelical Christians, um, I think what we saw in 2020 is people who called themselves evangelicals went even harder for Trump than they did in 2016. 
But what you saw in general is that the share of the American electorate who considers itself evangelical is shrinking. That I don't see any dissipation in that trend. Another thing to watch is the decoupling of this movement from Christianity. So what, and I, I believe that that pastor from the ERLC at um, the Southern Baptist Convention told me this all the way back then, is when people are faced with a confrontation of this doesn't quite fit, the Jesus of the Bible and this violent rhetoric and this America first, when people are faced with a confrontation of this doesn't fit, they drop their faith. They don't drop their politics. And so I think what you'll see is people maybe leaning more into these fringe movements of, you know, you even see sort of these Eastern religion type things, very like not accurate, but, you know, in sort of wellness communities, yoga, Eastern spirituality, getting coupled with a mistrust of, you know, American medical system and then moving all, all these kind of groups kind of coming together around, I think, Christianity, you know, can continues to be decentered in a lot of it. But even the definition of American Christianity continues to shift. What does that actually mean? It's become much more of a sociological distinction than a religious one. Well, that observation that when faith and political identity are in conflict, you lose your faith. I haven't heard that before, and I find that really terrifying. But I guess it aligns with this this other observation that a, a lot of militant Christians today, at least self-described Christians, they eschew church. They're not going to church. It's it's part of their political identity more than a faith-bound uh, identity, which is also scary, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I would love you to to bring us home on a optimistic note. Is there anything that gives you hope for the future of the church writ large, the evangelical movement, the vision of uh, the the folks like Trump and the idolizing of celebrity. What are some some positive signs you're seeing, if there are any? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I always like I try to be cynical, but I come back around to hope eventually. I just can't help myself. Yeah, I'm a you know longtime Minnesota sports fan, so I have to come back there. <laughs> But, well, it's I, I would imagine it's also the the journalist slash pastor <laughs> conflict, right? You have the cynical right. journalist and the hopeful pastor. I love it. That's right. Yeah, and the like sports fan who's just like loves the underdog. So yeah, I think I see some positive trends in the work of within evangelical Christianity. You know, Kristen Dumay, author of Jesus and John Wayne, and then also Beth Allison Barr, who's done a lot of writing her recent book on the role of women in the church. And I think those two together, along with somebody like Beth Moore, um, have kind of opened a space within evangelicalism um, to challenge some of these long-held idols that hadn't been yet smashed, whether it's the idol of like complementarianism and these strictly defined gender roles in the church. But I think that's really encouraging. And these these are voices coming from within evangelicalism. I also just recently read a book that's coming out soon telling the stories of survivor stories of those who suffered abuse in the church. And I think that, you know, these stories finally being told and heard um, is so critical. And then, you know, closer to the helm, like I said, I love kids. I recently left um, my congregation in January just because the commute was too much for my family and I. 
But the kids of that church, they just have my heart. I mean, they are such great kids. They were so involved. And this was a church that was very multi-generational. So you've got grandparents, great-grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, you know, large farm families. And these kids were just there week in, week out. And my confirmation class, I've got a painting that one of made one of them made me up on the wall. And they were so willing to like have hard conversations. We went through COVID together. We, you know, they were with me when my brother-in-law died of COVID. And so seeing and how central that church remained in this rural community, it was a lot of hope, you know, in the midst of some challenges, some hard times, I see that love like can, can conquer a lot. And this willingness to love and to trust one another um, can do some pretty amazing things. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I was lucky enough to interview Mike Gerson before he passed and and he kept going back to that. And we had Jim Obergefell on who talked about empathy as the the secret weapon. Um, yeah. Well, it's been, it's been great having you. I am fascinated by this subject, but I also, I want to move the needle. You mentioned Kristen Dumay. She's coming on uh, a little bit later uh, and we'll keep revisiting this because it is It's not only fascinating, but all important for the future of our democracy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was Angela Denker. Make sure to check out her book, Red State Christians. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Ruloffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.